Hello and welcome to this bonus episode of the Fertility Podcast where I've been taking some of the best bits from Fertility Fest to give you a short series of abridged versions of some of the sessions that took place. CNN news anchor Hannah Vaughan-Jones asks the big fertility questions to an expert panel of fertility specialists, artists and public figures, including Professor Geeta Nargund, Medical Director of Create Fertility, Jeffrey True, consultant in reproductive medicine and listed as one of Tatler's best private doctors for three years running, Professor Joyce Harper from the University College London's Institute of Women's Health, Ricky Martin, winner of The Apprentice and IVF Patient, and Lewis Vaughan-Jones from BBC World News and IVF Patient and Hannah's Hubby. Hannah was armed with 10 questions for the panel, putting the postcode lottery, the business of fertility and other important issues all under scrutiny. And the first one you will hear being discussed is the state of IVF in the UK. Then the contentious issue of fertility treatment add-ons, which, as you can imagine, provokes a variety of reactions. I want to ask about the state of reproductive medicine in the UK because I think a lot of people when they first start embarking on a, a fertility journey seeking treatment most people would probably want to stay at home to start off with rather than going abroad because you think it's cheaper perhaps or it's just more familiar. Britain was the sort of the pioneering country for IVF. It's what 41 years now since um, the first IVF baby. In those sort of four decades, are we still the kind of pioneers, or are we now on the back foot somewhere? Are we lagging behind the competitors? Choice. Um, well, we are. We are still the pioneers, and there's lots of firsts that are still coming out of the UK. But um, we're pretty low on funding for IVF, um, and we discussed this afternoon at the uh, race religion and reproduction. Um, session that really IVF is still a white middle class privilege. Mm -hmm. It's not something that a lot of different races can afford to do and a lot of people can't afford to do. So I think even before looking at the, the technology, there's lots of new technology, there's people talking about using artificial intelligence to help choose our embryo and all these sorts of things. And I think what we fundamentally need to do in the UK is actually sort out our funding so we can make this accessible to a greater number of people, as has been suggested, but it's not actually what happens. And in, in many countries there, are, there is funding. So places like Belgium um, and Israel, other countries, there, there's a lot of funding for fertility treatment. So I think it's, it's terrible that we can't even get over that before we look at technology. And when you say funding, because we have, you know, the, the, the NICE guidelines yeah. say that it should be three rounds of IVF per person in the UK. And um, we know that that just doesn't happen in most, in most parts of the country. When you say funding, in, in Belgium, for example, is it just unlimited? No, I think Belgium is six. It's six. six, okay. Six in Belgium. There's still... Yeah, yeah. So six, but six cycles is a, is a huge number. Yeah. So I live in Essex, and um, my treatment would not have been covered by the health service. I was just lucky, and I've been very open about this. Um, I, I, I associate with a number of clinics, and luckily they did my treatment for free. And if they hadn't... I would not have had children because mm. of my academic wage. I would not have afforded to have children. So I feel really passionate about this because I would have, and my bill was about 40,000. Um, and there's no way I could have afforded that. So I really feel for people who are not the privileged to be able to go through this treatment. And so it's, we need to do something. it's not just necessarily the, the, the cost up front, it's all the advertising. Everything is aimed at really a kind of white middle class women, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, I mean, really, I think we should be embarrassed as a nation 
about poor funding for IVF, and uh, Joyce and Jeff both mentioned about Belgian funding, and it's normal to have adequate IVF funding in Western Europe in many, many countries. And we as National Health Service are failing our public, failing our men and women in achieving that because one of the founding principles of our National Health Service is to um, give fair and equal access to healthcare. And we are not doing that. More than 80% of clinical commissioning groups are not offering what the NICE gives. So we are ending up in a situation of inequality when it comes to reproduction, mm -hmm. as we are just saying, because only the rich and those affluent can reproduce when you don't get the chance in the National Health Service. And that's something we all have got to address. And, and it's happening at the moment. There isn't even a national price or a tariff for IVF. So there's so many things to be addressed when it comes to IVF funding. Inequality is unacceptable and unjust. And I would like all of you to write to the government. <laughs> now, I really mean that. Because without you, it is not going to change. We can shout about it as much as possible. But it's you who can make a difference. Write to your local MP. We touched on the issue of add-ons. Um, Maybe we can just start by talking about what add-ons are, because Helen, I don't know if you know what, what, what all of them are. Some people in the audience who maybe are just starting out are looking at IVF and they're, they're sort of being bombarded with all of these possible things. And I warn you as well, they can creep up at unexpected times as well. You think you've covered all bases and then suddenly you come out of the general anaesthetic and you're just like, would you like this? Like, no idea. I don't know. Um, so we're talking about add-ons would, would range from things like embryo glue to endometrial scratches uh, to the ERA test, the error tests, to PGS, PGD, the genetic screening as well. Um, Joyce, do add-ons work? So this has been something that's occupied me based on laughter already. Uh, for the last 10 years, I, I don't work in a clinic, I'm an academic, so I can speak up uh, about these add-ons, which many, many clinics are doing. And I'm part of the Human Fertilisation and Embryology Authority Committee that designed the traffic light system, which I hope some of you are aware of. It's on the HFA website. And we employed an epidemiologist, is someone who looks at all the studies that have been done for these add-ons. And, and the add-ons are things that are an addition to your basic treatment. And in all cases, they are being claimed as going to improve your chance of having a baby. So if that's the case, there's very simple studies that are done, that there's a little bit of science here, they're called randomized controlled trials, and you just have a group of patients that don't have the, the treatment, don't have the add-on, just have normal IVF, and then you have a group of patients who have the intervention or the add-on. And what you need to see at the end of these large, and they are complicated studies, is that which group has the highest live birth rate? That's the most important factor. You're trying to create a child for this couple, not just pregnancy rates. So unfortunately, in all of the add-ons that were examined, there were none that showed that they produced an increase in live birth rate. So the HFA have used a traffic light system where green would be, there is evidence, that these studies have shown there are benefits. And none of the add-ons on, on the list have got a green light. There are some that are amber and some that are red. And in my view, we need to really step this up now. We've, we've also produced a consensus document by a number of key stakeholders. And we've said that clinics need to be much more honest with their patients about the effectiveness of these add-ons. But we still have got a lot of work to do. I, I'd really like to 
see clinics um, every year to tell us how much they're using these add-ons because there's no system for them doing this on, on the HFEA system at the moment. So I think we need to audit this every year and see what information the patients are actually being told. Are they being told that to part with their £500, £2,000... And they all start from £500. Yeah, <laughs> they all start from £500. Is this treatment going to help? So endometrial scratch is a great example. There was a big study last year showing that this had no benefit whatsoever. I've been told it has been offered on the NHS because it's been masqueraded as IVF treatment. But I think we've just got to be honest with our patients so they can make an informed choice. Do they mm. want to part with this money for a treatment that's not been proven to help? Um, you're a scientist, Ricky. Yeah. Did you do add-ons or did you yeah, so look into it more beforehand? I'm gonna, I guess I'll almost contradict the science side of me as well. <laughs> so IVF going through the process is like buying a car, right? A car will get you from A to B and I can throw the heated seat and I can throw the heated windscreen <laughs> and I can pay all that in. I don't necessarily need it, but you know what? When it's cold on a morning, I want that heated seat. Um, so all I'll say is when I was going through the process and maybe more from the male side, I couldn't control anything uh, from, from a scientific perspective. All I could control were maybe some small decisions. So even though the add-ons might not necessarily clinically get me the result, I applied my science thinking what's more likely to work. Because if I'm honest, looking at some of the clinic stats of births and other, I, I don't believe in any of that, I'm sorry. That's, that's where I contradict my science. I believe in am I on the right journey? Do, does this clinic want to help me and my partner? So we did do some add-ons. And once we started, um, so we did a couple, we did the scratch. I also wanted to do EVA, to do continued monitoring of the embryo as it was growing and being fertilized. I thought the more evidence, the more chance of it being successful. Um, and once you started doing it once, it's kind of like doing the lottery. Once you've done it once, if I don't do it next week, am I not gonna win the lottery next mm -hmm. week? If my numbers come up, how do I feel? And do I actually know if it made a difference if I do get the result? So all I'd say with add-ons is if you feel like it gives you a small element of control and you can see logic, screw whether it helps it or not. If it helps you with it, give it a go. I'm did, not... did the NHS pay for that? No, we added all of them. Oh, you added that on top, yeah. I, I, just just on, on that, I, I, we did, we did like most people went in, and we did all the add-ons. Everything. Everything right at the beginning. And there was one particular appointment where we were, yeah, we were on, you were coming around from general anaesthetic, we'd had egg collection or something, and then we were presented with a list of five things on all from 500 quid up to two grand and asked to make a decision there and then on which ones we wanted, which was, I mean, we went mental with the clinic afterwards because that is completely inappropriate way Jeff's to do clinic, things. Pre-Jeff, <laughs> which made me absolutely livid. And then we went kind of full 360 then, you know, from then on, we said we've added almost out of principle then, which is stupid, but we don't, we don't want any of them. Uh, we want to come in and do the basics, and I feel much, much happier. And you had the immuno, uh, immunotherapy as well, that was, which oh, I yeah, guess I falls under the add-on yeah. section as well. I shouted, I shouted at a doctor, which doesn't happen too often, <laughs> but uh, I, I'm not coming across well here, am I? Uh, <laughs> I uh, we went to do, you know, in, in, intralipids and how you know, might have killer cells and all this kind of stuff, and it was very in vogue, like. Uh, a couple of times because I think a couple of celebrities had it. And so uh, we went and got it checked out, thousands of pounds to get it all checked out, all came back absolutely clear. And the doctor, who's a very well-respected doctor, uh, comes up, right, well, all, all clear, but I think we should get you on X, Y, and Z anyway. And that, at that point, thankfully, it was quite late on. We've been through so many rounds that I knew enough then. So I'm saying that's absolutely ridiculous. There's absolutely no evidence of this. This is not happening. 
And that's when I shouted. I don't normally shout. <laughs> well, um, I have to say, um, uh, I agree with Joyce about what's happening and the progress being made. I'm particularly concerned about adults that cause potential harm to women who take them and reproductive analogies one, where we're intralipids and intravenous immunoglobulins that are given to women. There's actually a warning, safety warning. The FDA and the RCOG have given warning about risks of septicemia and risks of health effects of women. So that, that's, the, that's the intralipid drip, yeah? Is uh, that what you're talking about? Yeah, which is essentially a fat drip. Yes, correct. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, you know, um, fat, um, fat drip, I guess you say. <laughs> and so essentially, there are add-ons that have potentially big harm, and there's no evidence. There are add-ons, there is some evidence, and some risk, there are add-ons there is some evidence and probably safe. So they're classified that way. So efficacy and safety, they both matter. When there is potential harm, there's a warning. I don't think they should be done. And I agree with the traffic light system by the HFA, which is a step in the right direction. But can I just say the traffic is not holding up? Because there is no one monitoring it. There's no one monitoring who is going past red light, by amber light. So what is the point? There's what? nobody monitoring it. And no fines are issued, the traffic lights are there. And what would it take to go yeah. from amber to green? Yeah, what well, would, exactly. You know, what the HIV what kind of needs to do is to collect this information, we'll find out who is green, <laughs> and then place some conditions and fines. Without that, traffic lights mean nothing. Mm, just there. So, so, so I think there's a broader issue here, which again comes down to evidence. So yes, we've selected some of the add-ons, but remember that goes from one end of the spectrum particularly immune testing, which has got some problems, and that's so far out of the system and very expensive, through to the other end where there's probably no harm, for example, acupuncture, where some studies will say there's benefit, and other studies will say there's no benefit. So again, like a lot of the areas from endometrial scratch and embryo glue, there's a lack of good evidence. The one thing we can be proud of in the UK is we tend to do some good research. You would not be able to do any of these studies in the US and most of the studies we do, because they have to be funded somehow, they're limited. So one of the problems we should be looking at is actually getting properly funded studies to answer these questions definitively. So does embryo glue have a benefit? If so, in what groups of patients and what groups don't benefit? But until we have good funding, and it comes back to funding, to say we have a, uh, a study that is correctly powered so we get the right result, rather than 10 small studies which give conflicting results, then again, that's more of an issue. Yeah. So when we've got good evidence, we can act on it, but at the moment, we've got lots and lots of conflicting evidence, which unfortunately muddies the water, and that's when then people say, well, I don't know, but perhaps I'll try it, because yeah. in my case, it might help. And presumably, if something does ever make it to get the green light, that this works, that would then be, or should then be included in just a standard IVF package offered by a clinic. Uh, absolutely, and, and the problem sometimes, and again, we won't go into the HFEA and the ups and downs, is on one hand, they sometimes want transparency on the exactly what the patient's been billed, quite correctly, but sometimes then you have this massive shopping list, which it makes it more difficult. And what we should be moving towards in, a, in 2020 is having more of a bundled package where you say, actually, an IVF cycle these days includes these different things. So they're not split up and therefore 
uh, is raising questions, mm -hmm. you're looking at something that's more transparent, more honest, with a robust evidence base. I really hope that helps with some of the questions that might be bothering you at the moment. I know there are many. Do make sure you ask questions whilst trying to navigate your way through all of this. If it's the topic of add-ons, be sure to raise it during your consultations. Or if you're just starting out, you can look at the HFEA website for guidance. Go to clinic open days. Do know that no question is a stupid question. So ask, ask in the online communities. And of course, you can also ask Fertility Network UK, whose details will be in the show notes for this episode, which are thefertilitypodcast.com forward slash big fertility questions. You'll find details about the panel as well as details of the Fertility Fest website to keep up to date with everything that's happening and where it will be next. As always, be sure to subscribe to thefertilitypodcast.com. There's a handy search box there so you can put in the burning question and hopefully I've answered it. If not, there might be something relevant and it will point you nearer to finding an answer that you're looking for. Thank you for listening and until the next time, 